Welcome to the Transformational Leadership Podcast. This is your host, Hannah Anam. My mission is to help you lead more effectively and be an agent of positive change in times of disruption. On this podcast, we interview practitioners and leadership experts and have coaching exercises that you can apply immediately to your work challenges. Together, we learn how to achieve success and create workplaces in a world that work better for all. It's my pleasure today to welcome Sarah Devereaux. And Sarah and I are going to talk about growth agility, which is all about developing ourselves at the speed of AI. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about Sarah. Sarah spent the last 14 years in the learning and leadership development space at Google. Some of her most recent roles included the head of executive development programs, the head of strategic initiatives for the Google School of Leaders, and the global lead for the G2G, which is the Googlers to Googlers program. She has a keen interest in the future of work and leadership and a passion for learning and helping individuals and organizations to realize their full potential. Sarah, welcome to the Transformational Leadership Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So Sarah, I know that Google is often seen to be at the forefront of innovative experiments around human capital, right? <laughs> you all pioneered this idea of the 20% time where everybody can take 20% of their time and do something yeah. that they're really passionate about. And it created some huge innovations for Google. Uh, you've also done some research on what makes teams innovative. And now you've created communities of learning, uh, which is the Googlers to Googlers program, I guess. So in my book, Wired for Disruption, one of the five forms of agility that I talk about is learning agility. Mm. It's the ability to learn, unlearn, and relearn. And related to that is growth agility, the ability to learn from each other, right? How do we scale learning throughout the organization? So tell us about the G2G learning communities. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I always love talking about G2G when I think back on my 14 years, uh, it's certainly the, the crown jewel, um, I would say, of my, my Google career. So as, as Hannah mentioned, you know, G2G stands for Googlers to Googlers. Uh, this is a volunteer learning network, teaching and learning network inside of Google. It's actually got about 11,000 uh, employees who are participating these days across a little over 110, 115 offices, I believe, uh, globally. And the folks who are participating um, are teaching their peers on a variety of topics. So they're teaching courses, they're coaching, they are designing learning materials. It uh, just kind of depends on what you know, learning and development activity uh, they're most passionate about and where they see a need uh, to help their peers grow and develop. It's entirely voluntary. Folks literally just have to raise their hand and say, hey, I'm interested in being a G2Ger and we say, welcome to the fold. And we, we get them, you know, information and training about how to become better facilitators, better coaches, better designers. Uh, and then we basically turn them loose. So a big part of G2G's success is trusting people uh, and making sure that they understand that we trust them to do a great job. Nobody, I always like to say that nobody volunteers for something, doesn't get paid for it and says, hey, you know what? I really want to spend my valuable time and energy doing this and I want to, I want to suck at it. I want to be awful. Like yeah. nobody, <laughs> nobody, nobody says that. Kind of thing. like humans don't do that. 
if you give them the tools, if you give them the trust, the autonomy, the tools to do a great job, and you help them to understand how what they're doing relates up to a higher purpose, they will consistently exceed your expectations. And that's been our experience of the G2G community uh, over the last, gosh, it's been 13 years now that that uh, group has been in existence. Yeah, that's um, really powerful. And one of the things that's kind of occurring to me is, you know, who decides what topics are most in terms of learning, right? And is there sort of like a menu of here's all the things that are needed or is it a lot more organic where somebody says, hey, I want to learn and teach this and then you just sort of turn them loose? It's a great question. Um, And the answer is that it's a hybrid. So one of the things that's really important about maintaining a high level of quality when it comes to a program like G2G is you want to make sure that the people uh, who are participating have the autonomy to teach on things that they're really excited about, that they're really passionate about. So if you tap someone and you say, hey, we really need presentation skills and we need you to teach it, and they actually happen to be a really good presenter, but they're not really passionate about presentation skills, the quality of the training and the services that they provide is just not gonna be as high as somebody who is good at presentation skills and says, hey, I really wanna teach this. And so tell me a little bit about how do you measure the success of a program like that? And, you know, as you think about the benefits of it, is it the benefits in employee engagement? You know, the people that are actually creating the courses, can you, I can only imagine the sense of ownership that they have or yeah. also sort of the, the ability to learn. Because as you think about it now, there's so many um, learning platforms that are external learning platforms that are available out there. And so I'm really curious about why G2G versus, you know, everything that's available outside. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. So a couple things. One, there's quite a bit of benefit for the G2Gers themselves. So being able to spend a percentage of your time, whether it's five, whether it's 20, uh, somewhere in between, teaching your peers and and being able to have kind of that creative outlet, being able to network with people that you wouldn't have met otherwise. You know, when I joined Google, we were just a little over 7,000 employees. um, And now it's over, you know, 110, I think, thousand across all of our offices. And so it's harder to meet up with, you know, some engineers if you're in HR, you know, or to meet up with like some product folks if you're in sales. Like you're just not as connected as you were when we were a smaller community. And so G2G provides um, a really great outlet for people to be contributing to the development of their peers, to be contributing to Google's overall growth, um, as well as being able to connect with people and build relationships across functions that they wouldn't have had the opportunity to do before. For the learners themselves, we've heard from folks that it really means a lot to be learning from people who have an understanding of what it means to be them. Like this person gets what it's like to be in my shoes. And we particularly see this um, when when we're looking at job related skills. It's helpful to understand the context that Googlers are operating in. And that's often, you know, why um, we think anyway, we tend to see G2Gers with higher favorability scores than full-time trainers who are doing this as their day-to-day job or than our external vendors because they have that understanding of the context. 
And then finally, you know, there's a huge benefit to learning and development um, because not only are we, you know, helping people to build these skills, facilitation, you know, group management, these skills are transferable, having that creative outlet, networking, the learners themselves are saying that they love it, but we're also providing that development to the G2Ger while not having to spend, you know, a ton of money on a lot of external training. And one thing that occurs to me that I'm thinking for anybody listening in into this podcast, and we have a lot of folks that are very passionate about leadership, often um, a lot of HR folks listen in. And if you happen to be an HR person listening in or a leader in, in an organization, and they want to implement something like this in their organization, what is some advice that you would have for them, Sarah? Yeah. Like, What were some of the things that you sort of tried and said, okay, I've learned I'm not going to do that again? Oh, so many, so many. Okay, let's think here. What's What are kind of my top mistakes? There were many, many mistakes uh, over the years. Okay, I would say that the the biggest one that I would I would highly recommend avoiding is doing anything that would make your community feel like you don't trust them. Hmm. So one of the things that we did at Google is when we were building the G2G program, we started it off um, in Dublin, um, actually in 2007. And we did it out of necessity. We had all of these people who were, who were coming in the door um, in our sales office. That was our EMEA headquarters at the time. And we didn't, you know, we didn't have enough trainers. We had three trainers and hundreds of new hires that were going to come in. It was just physically impossible for us to get all of these folks, you know, trained up and job ready. So we were like, all right, listen up. We can push start dates, you know, which nobody wants to do. We can also take, you know, your top sales folks off the floor. So they're not going to sell. They're not going to make you any money for the next three months. People don't really want to do that either, but we can help them become good trainers, you know, and, and we can train up these folks and then we'll give them back, you know, in September, we'll give them back because that's the deadline for getting all of these people job ready. And even though that's not a super popular decision, it's actually much more profitable than pushing start dates and potentially losing out on all that talent, particularly given, you know, 2007 was our biggest hiring year and then 2008 was our biggest hiring year and then, you know, 9, 10, 11, it just kept going, right? So when we did that and we had to go really fast and we just let these people go out and train after we got them to a relatively reasonable skill level in terms of facilitation and content expertise, they did a really amazing job. And the quality was good. They were happy. The trainees were happy. The trainees were job ready. Their quality scores were just as good when they when they hit the ground doing their day jobs as when we had the full-time trainers doing it. And it really wasn't until we had time after that crazy first summer to think about, okay, how do we want to structure this into an actual program that we had the time to screw it up, honestly, mm. and to, to put into place rules and regulations and requirements that meant that people didn't feel like they were trusted. And so the program really stalled between between 2007 and about 2011. We only built it to around 400 people. And then, you know, over the next four and a half, five years, we built it from 400 to 7,000 people. And the biggest thing that we did is we took away those barriers. We shifted from rules and regulations and requirements to guidelines and suggestions and support. So trust, trust people and, and believe that they can do extraordinary things if you give them the opportunity. I love that. 
I think I'm going to say that again. Trust people and believe that they will do extraordinary things if you just give them the opportunity to do that. What a beautiful way to lead. So shifting gears, the pandemic has accelerated digital disruption. We know that there's a lot of organizations that are going through tremendous digital transformation. And it often fails because of organizational resistance. Can you share what you've learned about creating change-ready leaders? Yeah, yeah, okay. I learned a lot. (laughs) And I think the thing that was so interesting about the pandemic was that it was almost validation for a lot of the leadership development strategies that we had been working on and that we had been thinking about for kind of like the last three-ish years. So the Google School for Leaders um, was a real rewrite of Google's leadership development strategy. And I was I was on the founding, you know, kind of team um, that set that up. And it was really about shifting away from the kind of more business school sort of oriented skills that often get associated with leadership and more about thinking about, okay, how do we, how do we get leaders to be change ready? How do we get them to be future proofed? Um, How do we help leaders lead at the speed of AI, which is something that really caught on as a concept when we launched the Google school for leaders and and started to scale it to Google's 3,500 plus executive population. And a lot of it comes back to, in terms of change readiness, a appreciation. So a couple things. One is an appreciation for complexity and the understanding of the difference between complicated problems and complex problems. So one of the the programs that we we ran for um, quite a while that I oversaw at Google um, was called Leading in Complexity. Mm. And it was really looking at um, a model called Kinevin. It is is not spelled the way that it sounds. It's uh, C-Y-N-E-F-I-N. So I wrote about the Kinevin framework in my latest book. So you know then that like the the model helps us to kind of understand the predictable and the unpredictable world. And when we were really thinking through, okay, how do we help leaders to better function in the unpredictable world and to accept it? So when you have a complex problem, right? Like you have something that um, is, is unpredictable, hasn't been done before. There's not a ton of best practices to lean back on. There aren't even experts that you can really lean on because it's new, it's never been done before. So helping leaders to understand and recognize a complex problem when they see it, and then from a mindset standpoint, helping them to be able to accept that complexity often means that you are not going to have the answers. And as the leader, as the point of accountability, as the person everybody looks to for the answers, perhaps as someone that you think should be the lone hero, it's not, it's not going to fly. It's not going to fly anymore. The world is changing. Here are all the signals that we're seeing. So really thinking and partnering with futurists, all kinds of good stuff. But you're not going to always know the answer. And what you're going to need to know how to do is try things out, do what we call safe to fail experiments, and be a little bit more risky with the decision making um, that you are engaged in and be able to nudge the system and then sense what those nudges are producing and adjust based on what you're what you're finding. So being complexity conscious, I guess is a good way to put it. There's a 
there's an author, um, and this is always a book that I recommend when I talk about leadership or um, kind of G to G. There's an author, Aaron Dignan, um, who wrote a book called Brave New Work. And he talks about being people positive, which is really one of the main components that we talk about in G2G and being complexity conscious, um, which is one of the main components that we talk about in leadership development in the Google School for Leaders. So Brave New Work is a good one um, if it's not already on your reading list to kind of understand some of these underlying concepts that we, we've used as a foundation at Google. So there's a lot about leadership that we have to unlearn. The absolute leader, right, of the future that had to have all the answers, had to be the expert, had to basically tell people what to do. And if they didn't know what to do, they were absolutely terrified or felt like they had to pretend that they knew what to do, right? All these things are things that we have to unlearn. Tell me about what are some emerging leadership characteristics or leadership competencies that in particular, we need to become much more adept at? Yeah, oh, it's a great question. Unlearning is a big one. So learning how to not rely on best practice. Uh, One of the things that we talk a lot about uh, in the Google School for Leaders is next practice. So it's not about what's been done before. It's about the practice we are developing for what needs to be done in the future. There's also just kind of this realization that knowledge is really not power any longer. Really, you know, humans, the knowledge that we acquire, it's the knowledge that we have, I should say, it is becoming outdated almost as fast as we can acquire it. Literally, the shelf life of some of these things that we spend five or more years trying to attain is only another, you know, five years. Yeah. So, It's really not a great return on investment anymore to just acquire more and more knowledge. The world changes so fast. The thing that you have to get really good about is sense-making and and understanding. We talk about situational awareness a lot and the relationship between situational awareness, the context that you're operating in, and self-awareness, the context that you bring, and how those two things relate. And being able to sense in your environment and sense within yourself what's going on and start to come make connections and, and put patterns together. So really having that level of self-awareness, that's really important. Um, being able to develop that complexity consciousness, that systems thinking to understand the patterns in your environment. And then having kind of that bravery to encourage to be able to act. You know, we do so much talking. Despite having imperfect knowledge. Yes, you're not going to have it. So getting to that point where it's like, okay, I, I've got all the data that I can possibly get, or let's, or even better, I have 70% of all the data that I could possibly get. And I'm weighing the benefit of acting with 70% and spending the next four months trying to get 10% more data. Is that really beneficial given how fast the world works? Am I missing my window of opportunity if I try to collect that extra piece of, you know, 10% of data? And is it really because I need the data in order to make a better decision? Or is it just I'll feel better about the decision if I have the extra data? But nine times out of 10, it's because it makes you feel better. And that's exactly right. And going to exactly that point, Sarah, I imagine the leaders of the future are going to have to develop a new relationship with failure. Absolutely. 
I love watching when a CEO or a founder or a head of, you know, engineering somewhere, I don't know, is willing to say, hey, we're trying this. Like, we're going to give this a shot. And like, we're going to tell you how it goes. And then when it fails, coming back and saying, yeah, you know what, the whole thing blew up in our face. Let us tell you what we learned and what we're going to try next. I just think that level of honesty and authenticity, that level of vulnerability with failure publicly, whether it be within organizations or even externally in the more extreme case, I think that's so valuable for the world. Totally agree with you. It is. It so totally is. And you know what it says? It takes somebody with a really strong spine and a strong center to fail, especially fail publicly and not be ashamed of failure or being a failure. So many people in the past have hidden failure the organization doesn't learn. Yeah, I totally agree. And yeah, there's this, this interesting connection point that you just made around the act and the identity. Mm. So in my opinion, is an act. It's something that you do. It's something that happens. Like, it's not who you are. And I think we have to be very careful. Language and the way that we use language is, is actually very important. With failure in particular, I think that changing that mindset to say like failure is something that I may have done, but it is not who I am is really important. And failure is so important to learning and growth. And when we shy away from failure, we shy away from growth and becoming the best that we can possibly be. So when we spoke the last time, Sarah, you said something that really intrigued me. You said something about evolving our consciousness. Mm. The speed of AI. And I was, we didn't get into a discussion around it, but I was really curious about it. So how does that work for you? Yeah. Thank you for reminding me. Every time someone says, uh, you said something that really intrigued me. I'm like, oh shoot, I hope I can remember what I said. Was it good? <laughs> so it that that particular uh, phrase kind of goes back to this whole idea of self and situational awareness. So when we, a lot of times when we talk about leadership development and how we, we move forward as human beings, we talk about it in you know tech terms. We're a tech company and that tends to resonate really well with, with our leaders. So we talk about the fact that you know, our operating system needs to be upgraded. And the operating system of human beings is consciousness. So we need to expand our consciousness to better understand our world, to better understand ourselves, and to better understand our place, you know, and our actions and the possibilities of functioning in that world and within that context, and how it all works together to create the results that we're trying to achieve. So when we talk about up-leveling consciousness, we're really talking about up-leveling the human operating system. And a lot of that comes back to that level of self-awareness and how it relates to situational awareness. Yeah. And so do you have a word for it that you've coined? Because what you're talking about is such, in my view, such advanced um, systems thinking as a member of the system, how am I interacting with the system, right? and my ability, I'm a 14-year practitioner of mindfulness, my ability to become aware and be mindful of my own mindset and all the ways in which I filter out information that is outside of my own beliefs, right? So there's data I don't notice. <laughs> the operating system does not notice 
right. so crazy because we have blind spots and our blind spots are driven by our belief systems, right? So there's a lot of stuff in our situational awareness that we miss. If I believe that, you know, Sarah's really smart, then I'm likely not going to pay attention to the ways in which Sarah perhaps makes mistakes. Mm-hmm. Or if I believe that I'm really smart, then I'm not going to pay attention to all the ways in which I'm not smart. And that's my operating system, right? But now if I start to get much more aware of my biases and my beliefs, then I'm more open to noticing all these other data points in my awareness. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Right? This is why mindfulness is so important to our both our self-awareness and our situational awareness. Absolutely right. And so my question is, have we as a leadership community coined a term that we should be paying attention to? Like once you name something, then you pay attention to it. That really talks to this ability to notice. We we have not. I mean, I think we should. But what you're saying is just spot on uh, with really a lot of the foundations that have built the leadership development programs at Google. So a huge part of what we focus on in sort of the flow at Google of like creating a practice around self-awareness is around noticing like the hardest part, the first step in really building self and situational awareness is to notice. And it's the hardest one is getting, you know, really transcending those biases, um, being able to see things in a different way. You know, one of the programs um, that we run uh, is called Leading at Scale. And it's actually not about scaling your organization. It's about scaling yourself as a leader. And the way that we have structured that program, um, we have art that we've curated and we have it built into the programming and the design of the course in order to help inspire people to notice and to see things differently. So we do it in the in the Santa Cruz Redwoods um, when we're all in person together. Oh my God, I love and that space. It's such it, a beautiful place. Now that's a consciousness elevating space right there. Yes, exactly. And space is a huge component of our strategy. Space matters. So yeah, we do this, this program in the Redwoods and we set up this kind of trail throughout the trees um, where people like follow a map. So we talk about the adult development map and we talk about the different stages of adult development, um, according to Keegan. And, and we have folks stop at a different station, you know, kind of along this trail and they're with like a small group and a facilitator and they come upon a um, an art installation. And then they do the they do the walk twice um, over the course of their three days together. And it is just fascinating to watch the difference in how people respond to the same questions and the same pieces of art on day three versus the way that they responded on day one. Wow. That's so powerful. And it sounds like it's such deep work. Yes. It's not just, you know, let me learn how to become a better communicator. No, we figure that those are things that you can do externally on your own that we do not need to help you with. Yeah. Like we, we want to do the big stuff that's actually going to help create more deeply human leaders, um, not just what we would traditionally think of as better leaders. Yeah, beautiful. 
Beautiful. Well, I think we could probably spend hours just talking about this, but <laughs> so let's not. <laughs> we'll do that on a separate date. My final question, let's play futurist for a minute here. And now it's December 2030. So exactly 10 years from now, and you're looking back. What are the toughest challenges in human capital that we as a community have been able to solve? Mm. And what are the challenges that you yourself feel particularly compelled and called to and that you would feel most proud of? Yeah, yeah. Well, I love playing futurist. I really hope that we have learned to be human, like in the human capital space and to remember that the people that we serve are human beings, complex human beings that have complex lives, that have complex sets of emotions, that are motivated by trust and by freedom and by care and compassion. And that this whole, you know, carrot and stick way of motivating people is just gone. And we're kind of looking back and saying, wow, that was so silly. Remember when we did that? That was just ridiculous. Like that doesn't work. And we are really thinking about the longevity of building and sustaining human capital. I've managed for over 12 years at Google and I'm a big fan of job crafting. I post roles and my roles are always so general that when people apply, they're like, what am I doing? What exactly is this? I heard this was a cool theme, but I don't actually know what you're looking for. And I'm like, great, perfect. Let's talk about what you want to do because you can always find an intersection between what people want to do and, and what you need as an organization. That's why G2G works. And if you can do that more in the human capital space and help people to do what they really care about, you will get so much more out of them. So if we can remember that human beings are essentially good and that they need to be cared for and respected and empowered and built up, you know, again, very people positive sort of sort of philosophy there, we can get rid of a lot of the bureaucratic crap <laughs> that takes up so much of our time um, that none of us really want to do. I'm not really sure why we're still doing it. Um, and, and really just with a little bit of trust and a little bit of care, I think, you know, we're going to be amazed at, at what human beings are able to produce and how it's going to improve the state of work for all of us. And I, I guess I would say, I would hope that our industry gets to that point, And I would hope that I played some small part, uh, in getting us there. Beautiful. Well, thank you for the time that you and I spent together, Sarah, um, I definitely get your passion for what you're doing. Thank you for having me. I would uh, yeah, be delighted to, to do it again. It's always fun to chat with you. Thanks for listening. This is your host, Hannah Anam. Please rate, comment, and share our podcast with those you care about. Be the leader who helps others grow and thrive in times of disruption. You can visit our website at www.transformleaders.tv. There, you'll find other great tools to grow your leadership and be a force for good in these times. Until the next time, my friends. <laughs>